Hello, and welcome back to the Resilient Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Willis. After nearly four months of weekly interviews with 12 senior decision makers from cities and large global corporations, distilling their insights and reflecting on them with Seth Schultz, the team and I took a couple of weeks off. But today we're back with a special episode, a bonus, you could say, where I'm in conversation with Gareth Morgan, the Director of Resilience for the City of Cape Town. I got to know Gareth quite well over the last couple of years, owing to our shared fascination with the prospect of cities learning from crisis. We worked closely together on the Cape Town Drought Response Learning Initiative, which was my previous project with the Resilience Shift. Back in April, when the Resilience Shift and I set off on this Resilient Leadership Project, Gareth told me of his plan to run a similar week-by-week reflective learning project just within the management team of the city of Cape Town. We thought we must compare notes. So it's my great pleasure to have Gareth on the podcast today. Welcome, Gareth. Hi, Peter. It's great uh, to be with you. And as you said, this is part of a conversation that we have been having, I think, for two and a half years already. And it's great to see so many outcomes of uh, reflective learning and trying to bed it down already. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, you're right. Um, A lot has happened in those two and a half years. And I think between us, we've made quite a a lot happen. So let's get into it. So just for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to give a a a brief introduction to who you are. It'll be a very amateur one, because you're obviously the professional in that department. I'll just sketch out the outlines as I understand what you do and where you've come from. And then I'll ask you to fill in some of the gaps. So you've been in this job of Director of Resilience for Cape Town. You actually sort of initiated the job. There wasn't such a role before you came in just over five years ago. And as I understand it, you and Cape Town were one of the sort of an initial cohort organized by the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities Network. So you've been in this sort of global experiment for five years now as one of its pioneers. You started out um, studying political science and did a a master's in international relations at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And you were obviously a very brilliant student and went on to to Oxford to do a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, which you then turned into a master's in environmental change and management at Oxford, which you seem to have leveraged into what you did when you came back, which is in 2004, as I understand it, you, you went into parliament. That's correct. Peter, I, was, I did nine years in parliament. Uh, it was an incredible experience. I was very, very young uh, to be able to do that. And I was able to obviously leverage very nicely off uh, much of my uh, academic uh, studies. But after a while, uh, the allure of being in government and not in opposition uh, was very, very strong. And after a brief break, I found myself in municipal governance in the city of Cape Town, which is one of the metropolitan municipalities in South Africa. And indeed, I have been here for five years. I've been the director of resilience for slightly lesser time, uh, three years, in fact. And I had the privilege of setting up the first ever resilience department in the city, as you say, with the generous support of 
the Rockefeller Foundation via, at the time, 100 Resilient Cities, which is today the Global Resilient Cities Network. And if I think back to some of the things that I had done, particularly at a postgraduate level in my studies, well, then the sort of systems thinking and complexity that came with uh, studies in environmental change, I found very, very useful in pivoting into broader urban resilience, which is also about complexity and systems thinking and understanding the deep vulnerabilities and opportunities that exist within the urban fabric of our cities. And Cape Town is a fantastic template uh, within which to work. Um, It has huge amount of challenges and opportunities. And, you know, within literally days of taking up that job as director of resilience, the large, the the severity, I should say, of the day zero drought uh, struck. And that was a very, very uh, steep learning curve for me as director of resilience. And so we've gone from day zero to global pandemic within the span of three years. So I don't think there's any question in Cape Town or in our organization that resilience is of importance. And I think we're in a, in a much stronger position today, more generally, with regards to resilience than we were three years ago. That makes me wonder, Gareth, whether when you, you joined the city and then, what, sort of roughly two years after joining, you were given the opportunity to set up the resilience department. Was the idea, well, how was the idea of a resilience department greeted within the city administration? Because it, it, was, a, it was a very new idea. I could imagine there might have been people thinking, why on earth would we need something like this? Isn't it just, isn't it, haven't we got those sort of things covered by other departments? That's an interesting question. What was useful was that the Council of the City of Cape Town in 2016 had made resilience one of the guiding principles of its integrated development plan. So every municipality or every council after a new term of office begins is obliged by law to approve an integrated development plan. And so resilience featured there. And in that plan, it said that Cape Town would develop a resilience program. And that was there and thereabouts uh, the same time as the Rockefeller Foundation and 100 Resilient Cities were approving Cape Town's acceptance into the broad network of 100 cities. That's not to say that it all landed very easily at the start, but heading straight into a severe multi-year drought was, in hindsight, a very, very useful way to land the principles of resilience in a massive organization like uh, we have here. And so, you know, I, along with uh, my boss, uh, Craig Kesson, who's been part of your resilience podcast over the last few weeks, along with a few other people with a range of skills, were central to mapping out the possible programs and responses to that drought. And we overlaid it immediately with a resilience lens, and we took it to council, and it was approved. And resilience landed. And it's funny to think back now that there is no contest, particularly in the water space, about resilience. Everyone gets it. And in fact, the water strategy, which is also a new piece of work in the city of Cape Town, makes it very clear that building resilience is part of the water vision. And 
when you go into the program management side of water um, going forward, then the explicit goal of the organization is to build water resilience by 2030, which means the expansion and diversification of our water sources among a few other projects. So it landed very, very well. And then, of course, as that crisis started to dissipate, I led the drafting uh, with a number of other people of Cape Town's first ever resilient strategy. And we were able to pivot off that drought. That drought was a significant story which forms a big part of our resilience strategy. And while the resilience strategy is much broader than just water, it looks at a range of shocks and stresses, it was great to be able to use that moment and to capture it. And in some sense, that was probably one of our first major reflective learning moments in Cape Town, where we were able to say, these are things that we learned during that shock event. And these are ways where we can build back stronger across a range of systems. And it's interesting to think that particularly now as we confront COVID and live with COVID, so many of those actions which we first developed in the water strategy and then honed in the resilience strategy are now being reused in the COVID response. So the resilience strategy was a big act of reflective reflective learning. And uh, as I said, you know, once that was passed, we began implementing the strategy and then the intersection with the COVID uh, crisis happened. So, so we're, let's, let's get into the, um, the, the chapter of the story that we, in a way, share, which, is, um, which began in a coffee shop not far from your office in the center of Cape Town, if I remember rightly, in March 2018, where I came to you with uh, this idea that I had. But, and just for our listeners, uh, March 2018 was the, would you call it the epicenter moment of that day zero? threat in that I think when we met for coffee, the threat of day zero and having to queue for our water had either just been lifted or it was not yet quite lifted. But the city was living right on the brink at that time. And I came to you with this idea, um, wouldn't it be a good thing if we could get a sort of um, a, a citywide conversation going about what happened, how can we learn from it? and so on. And I didn't know you from a bar of soap, but I'd been told that you were now Mr. Resilience for Cape Town. Yes, I remember that well. Uh, I met you in a coffee shop um, next to the Civic Center, and uh, we started this conversation around learning from crisis. And uh, we weren't quite out of the woods yet, but I think day zero by March had been called off. And I had been, in my own mind, thinking about everything that had gone on in those previous seven to nine months. And I was already starting to get anxious about the fact that we were going to miss out from learning because we were operating under crisis and we were agile and we were making adjustments all the time. But I was beginning to forget and I was worried other people were beginning to forget as well what it was like and what went into those decisions, not just in the city government, but in civil society or households or businesses, because, you know, as, as, we, as the story we tell, it was four and a half million people who helped to avoid day zero. And so it was opportune that you came along, Peter, at that time to have that conversation. And I remember 
being immediately interested. And I remember immediately thinking, this was, this was the first time we had ever tried to construct a reflective learning program. I remember immediately thinking, will people, particularly inside the city government, whether they be a senior political leadership or city officials, be prepared to tell the story, um, to tell their own truths, to be vulnerable? And you know, one of the things that I've learned about reflective learning is there's not a there's not so much value in simply recounting the events. You know, reflective learning requires you to be honest, and it probably requires you even to be a little bit distanced from yourself to sort of look back. And I was, you know, are people capable of doing this in a way that is authentic? Will many of my colleagues choose to, for example, spin what happened, or would they be defensive? And, you know, we didn't allow that you and I, Peter, to put us off. And I remember us plotting, and I remember you going and developing a very long list of possible candidates. Uh, and we worked on that mm. together a bit. And then ultimately we approached, or you approached the, the city, um, my colleague, uh, Hugh Cole, and uh, we requested permission to do the project, um, and that's his delegation to approve that. And we got the go-ahead. And amazingly, the city officials that you invited to spend time with you in the studio and the uh, senior politicians were wonderfully authentic about what happened and were also able to be both self-critical of, of what we did and to reflect very positively on that which deserved that type of reflection that was replicated by other members that other people that you interviewed from civil society business and academia but from a city government point of view i was i was really really so happy that my colleagues who had deep trauma by living through the drought and making decisions from the drought were able to contribute in such a full way to this very, very rich project. You put it really nicely, Gareth, that um, that unknowing that we both went into this project with, because it was actually, I think it was you who really sort of stressed right at the very beginning, probably at that first meeting, you you said, um, I had a hunch that we, we shouldn't go to the city asking for the city's formal support to make it a city project. Um, but I wasn't sure. And you said, no, nope, no, definitely you must keep it independent, but I will help you to get access to the key people who you need to interview from the city, but it would be better to make it independent. And I think that in a way raised the level of risk for the for your colleagues, your senior officials and the politicians there in that their voices were going to be alongside voices from, as you say, business, civil society, academia, uh, so this wasn't the same as an internal inquiry uh, where they, they would know that, you know, nothing would escape the four walls of the city administration. It also meant that they, they realized that this was quite, a, quite an ambitious project in that it was really asking them to be authentic. And they all came to the party. It was um, quite humbling, actually. Your, your use of the word trauma was really spot on for me because uh, I was quite struck in some early encounters with your colleagues, 
how deeply exhausted they were and how hesitant they were, not knowing me, to open up um, in the initial sort of conversation before we got into the studio. When they got into the studio, it was fine. So this sort of reflective learning is not for it's not for sissies if you're talking about something that was, you know, literally life and death. And some of your colleagues, well, you yourself, I mean, you were part of a group that really took a whole city right to the edge. Yeah, Peter, I, um, I think it was an excellent decision to make sure that that project was independent of the city. And that was important for a couple of reasons. But one is the city bore the brunt of the response. Cape Tonians, of course, played their part. And together, as I said earlier, we avoided day zero. But so many of those big resource allocation decisions were made by the city and financial decisions. And, you know, not everything went well at all times of that drought response. And so there was a trust deficit. And so hence, it would have, wouldn't have been as credible for the city to try and manage a project itself on what happened during the drought. And the other thing as well, which I think is such an important part of reflective learning, is there are, and I remember having this debate extensively with you, Peter, and Victor, who um, was the filmmaker, around the fact that there wasn't one story in the drought, and that there were multiple stories during the drought. And those were, you could have a city government story, but there were also personal stories of city officials or political leaders who had their own take on what was happening. And similarly, there were people in civil society, households and businesses who have their own responses, who either approved or didn't approve of various actions being taken. And so hence, making sure that the project was away from the city, where the city participants were equal in voice to members of business, households, civil society, really added to the richness and value of the project. And, you know, if we were to take a big learning out of that project and to replicate it, then I do think that that is something which would have to be uh, achieved again. The other point I wanted to make, Peter, was, and, and it links to this comment about trauma, you know, they 39 individual one hour interviews in that library and and another 60 or so composite videos in that library. But for those people who take the time to really delve into the individual interviews, you do get the sense that for many people, and I'm talking, I'll talk particularly about city colleagues here, there was a deep desire to just download and to let the stuff out because of the trauma that went with Uh, navigating a city through this complex time. Whether it be city officials or politicians, I got the strong sense from reviewing many of those interviews that people wanted to talk. It was cathartic in its own way. And that is also one of the values of reflective learning is the value to the individual. And, you know, you as the interviewer in those projects would ask powerful questions and you would see where they would go. And sometimes people would just take you on a tangent or a journey, and it would be, in many respects, more interesting than the original question, because people felt comfortable with the process, and I think they felt comfortable with you, Peter, as well. This is fascinating, and I, and I want to take us 
from that sort of springboard of that project because we went in different directions when the but absolutely in parallel which is what's so interesting why we're having this conversation when the coronavirus arrived and it was clear that it was going to become a global pandemic you and i had a conversation about the possibility of doing some kind of real time reflective learning process within the city we got a little way down that track but then the resilience shift who i was also talking to said ah, no we've got this idea we'd like to to do a global project with city resilience officers in on different continents and half a dozen corporate leaders as well and that's what eventually we did which is the framework within which we're having this podcast conversation now and you decided that you were going to do something within the city administration that was within your immediate purview to get up and running quickly and i would love you to tell us about that and what what was your plan how has it worked out and with what sort of outcome yes peter so yeah we had that conversation and as you said we we went in different directions and i'm so glad we we did because um, it also gave me the opportunity to sort of hone reflective learning in real time in the organization. And so what I did is, well, I think the first thing is to, it's important to reflect on, on that key difference again. So the drought learning project allowed us to reflect after the, the worst of that event, whereas the coronavirus allowed us because we're now we're now attuned to the value of reflective learning, we were able to say, look, this is a system-wide shock, much like a drought. It's going to be sticky. It's going to be with us for a long period of time. We haven't dealt with this in a generation or more. And there's such value, I should say, in trying to capture what we were doing at various stages of the pandemic. And so I set about a project with some colleagues in the research department in the city of Cape Town, along with uh, one of my staff members, to build the apparatus for reflective learning in the organization in real time. And in summary, what it really is, is we ask city officials who are responsible for uh, big work streams under the COVID response, or responsible for big decision-making under the COVID response to, on a weekly basis, sometimes once every two weeks, provide us with a six to seven minute voice note. So low barrier to entry. We obviously have to socially distance in this time. And we wanted people to be able to participate on their terms. So we set up the framework for this. We set up the reasons for the project. And on a weekly basis, our research department would contact the city officials and say, here are some questions that you may want to reflect on in your voice note when you return it. And it would be open-ended questions. Some of it would be a bit more around what actually happened, uh, which is not, as I said earlier, the perfect definition of reflection, but it's required to build the record. And we would ask people, you know, what was concerning them, what they were proud of, what they would have done differently given another opportunity. The questions are always such an important enabler. And then we would sit back and we would allow the officials to upload their voice notes to a SharePoint site. And then we had a staff member 
who transcribes all of them. So we have a rich record now in written form. And as of now, we have about nine city officials that are regular participants in the program. And we have approximately uh, 60 transcribed voice notes that are building a record of what people have been thinking, what they've been going through, how they've been dealing with uncertainty and complexity. And we're starting to tease out from the reflections of the city officials, the changing and multi-directional nature of the pandemic from uh, the initial massive uncertainty and then significant guidance from national government. And that has subsided over time where we as the city government have had to increasingly fill the space around the response along with our provincial colleagues because national government's guidance has become less. And meanwhile, our colleagues have had to balance like people all around the world, these difficulties of increasingly having to work from home and deal with the anxieties and stress that come with, with that, which is an important part of the narrative which is coming through is this nature of work, the initial anxiety moving into over time, uh, certainly from my reviewing of the submissions, some degree of acceptance. And in some cases, some degree of this is actually quite useful. I'm more productive. Of course, there are exceptions. And then the pandemic proceeds. And, you know, a lot of what we were doing from the stories that are being told was around April was massive amounts of planning and trying to understand what the implications were. Moving into more around May, around implementation of large projects, June as well, uh, the delivery and finalization of many projects. And as we move into July, it starts to intersect with the peak of the pandemic in our city and then the gradual decline in fatalities and active cases. And so you get a sense now that people are thinking more about maintenance and vigilance in their responses mm. to the pandemic. So that's a little outline of what we have been doing. And so every few weeks, we produce a summary, which only goes to the participants, which is really the privilege of for those who participate. And, you know, in time, I will look to create a larger product that will encompass what uh, the value of this project was to the city of Cape Town. Fascinating. Thank you, Gareth. I mean, th there, there are incredibly clear and obvious parallels with the methodology that we developed um, with the resilience shift. And the, the only significant difference really is the, the fact that in our project, we have the luxury of my time to be able to set up these sort of half hour conversations every week with the 12 participants. Whereas you've done it on a much more sort of efficient way by sending questions and asking people to in their own time to do a, a voice note. But this idea of sharing the digest regularly back to the participants is exactly what we do. And uh, I'm just wondering whether there's, is there anything about the design and the methodology that you, you've landed on that you would do differently if you were starting out again? Yeah, Peter, I think I would probably have moved more quickly to uh, diary updates or voice note updates every two weeks instead of pushing for every week. So not everyone was able to find the time to do that. And I think two week allows 
for a little bit deeper amount of reflection because more is achieved and more is encountered in a two-week period than a one-week period for, for obvious uh, reasons. And um, I think as well in redesigning it, and, and these are these are iterative changes that I'm building into this now because, of course, this is ongoing. There is no intention to end it anytime soon. The pandemic uh, is going to be with us for you know, probably upwards of a year still in our city, is to increase the number of voices. Because some people using this methodology uh, like to talk every week, and some people actually would rather talk uh, you know, maybe once a month. And so we focus too much on a small cohort. And what I'm doing at the moment is expanding the number of voices to make sure that even if people wanted to only reflect once a month, that still builds this wonderful, rich body of knowledge. So, you know, I'm hoping to push the number of contributors up to somewhere closer to 20. And, you know, during the course of the program, even if a person was to do four or five voice notes, uh, we would have a wider account uh, and we would be able to look a little bit more deeply at the trends that are coming through. So, Gareth, tell me, is, are you in touch with other city resilience directors and officers and so on who are doing anything similar? What's your sense looking around the world? You're quite well networked in this field, I know. Yes, yeah, so we are well networked into the Global Resilience Cities Network, um, which is the successor of a 100 resilient cities. And that organization is leading a a program now on recovery from the pandemic, which is in its very nature a uh, reflective project where you have to understand what has happened and then plan against the vulnerabilities and uh, prior shocks and stresses around what you're going to do in the future. So there is a kind of methodology around reflection. But I am not aware um, from any of my colleagues across the network who are trying to build a capability around reflective learning. And so we had this benefit via the drought learning project, uh, you and I, to be able to see the value of it. And so what we did in our approved resilient strategy was we actually built an action on reflective learning. And so it's incumbent on me now as the director of Re resilience to find those opportunities when they arise to put in the processes for uh, reflective learning. So I'm not picking it up. And it's certainly something that uh, we in Cape Town would like to hone more as a capability. And so, Peter, you and I have discussed on a few occasions, you know, what is reflective learning? Uh, what are the most powerful questions you can ask a person that you're having a conversation with? And try and create some materials which can be shared within the broader resilience community. Because you, you can't just go into this cold. And, and I think particularly where people have put some work into building processes around reflective learning, then I think we need to capture that. So we've been very good at uh, capturing what happened during shock events and people's responses. We, we have, as of now, not been as good at capturing actually what we've learned about the process of reflective learning. And, and hence, you know, why we're having this conversation today, because that is something that we 
need to do because it is one of those capabilities of a resilience practitioner that we need to grow in the network of cities around the world who are daily and and yearly confronting these system-wide shocks and stresses. I think you're spot on. I, I look forward to continuing that conversation and widening it because I, I'm just thinking that the Cape Town Drought Response Learning Initiative, um, which is getting ready to launch out into the world properly in about a month's time in early September, and that that was a huge, um, quite costly project involving really two years of fairly intensive work to do it at the way that we wanted to do it, very thorough. And then at the other end of the scale, what you've done uh, is impressively um, light-footed in terms of requiring resources and so on. And somewhere in between what, what I'm doing with the resilience shift with this COVID-19 resilient leadership project is somewhere in the middle. And I think we're starting to see the the various potentials that lie in this. But I know I, I certainly, and I'm, sh- I'm sure you feel the same, it's when you've, when you've done a bit of this reflective learning and realized its benefit to the individuals that you're interviewing, or in your case, sort of asking to download, they feel the benefit. And then the, the benefit to people who, who watch or listen to read the outputs, then you think this is such a no-brainer that really... The idea that you could run a city without having some sort of habits or rituals of learning from what's gone wrong or what you've done well in the face of difficulty and so on seems a bit um, bit strange. But I, I want to thank you warmly, Gareth, for coming on the podcast and sharing your experiences and thoughts around this. Do you have a, a, a parting thought for us? How about I ask you a question, Peter? Um, you have spent uh, so much of the last, uh, ah, what is it, two and a half years uh, reflecting with people living in crisis. You know, for people maybe listening to this podcast who want to start thinking about how they might build a reflective learning component into a program or a project, what do you think, and from your experience, what do you think are, I don't know, two to three most powerful questions? that you can ask a person to get them into the position to reflect deeply? Sure. I was, you know, as you were winding up that question, I was hoping it would end slightly differently. I'm going to tell you, uh, I'll tell you the question I want to answer. Um, This is awfully rude of me, but is what would I suggest paying most attention to if you're wanting to set up that kind of reflective learning? And the thing that comes immediately to mind is that we humans, I think through our evolutionary history, going back, you know, 100,000 years and more, are conversational beings. We, I think we became human sitting around fires at night, listening to each other and telling stories and so on. What I discovered with that drought response project in the studio, and I've certainly found it very strongly with these 12 participants in our weekly conversations, is that We have a hunger to engage in thoughtful conversation without without an action being required. And so it it almost doesn't matter what the question is. 
if the structure of the situation is set up so that people feel that it's safe for them to talk and there maybe needs to be some sort of confidentiality built in at some point, uh, that would depend. And also that there's a genuine curiosity to, to go deeply into whatever matters most to the person who's being asked to reflect. So that, you know, my agenda, the things, that, the nuggets that I might want are, are pretty irrelevant, really. Uh, I trust that those nuggets, whatever they're, whatever is most important, will surface if we get into a beneficial conversation. And one knows when one's in a conversation rather than an in, in an interview. So that wasn't what you asked for, I know, Gareth, but uh, we have to have another coffee to work out those questions. Well, Peter, I think that that was uh, a great reflection, nevertheless. I think curiosity is such a core part of reflection, in both from the person who is probing and asking those questions and then that curiosity that emerges in the person reflecting as they as they understand after a few moments wow i actually have been thinking about a lot of things and when i lay it out here in this conversation and start putting it all together it is so interesting and I think, yeah, and, you know, I, I suspect that, as I said earlier, when it works, it works really well because the participants just want to share. So, Peter, I also want to just thank you for, for honing learning from crisis as a discipline. And I'm so glad that out of Cape Town, learning from crisis is now being understood as a discipline in many, many boardrooms and businesses and, and households around the world. And so I am proud that uh, Cape Town here at the southern tip of Africa is uh, contributing so much to reflective learning. Thank you, Peter. Well, an absolute pleasure. And thank you again for coming along and being on this um, podcast. It's been great catching up with you and going in a little depth into this thing that we share, Gareth. And I look forward to accompanying you on that journey up ahead. So thanks very much. And until soon. Thanks, Peter. See you for a coffee soon. <laughs> yes. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode. When one's pioneering a new methodology, as we've been, it's rare and incredibly valuable to be able to check in with a friend who's working on the same challenge in parallel. I have a strong sense that what Gareth and I were talking about is just the start of a long and fruitful journey, hopefully to be joined and enhanced by many, many others around the world. If you're wondering what's going on with the Resilient Leadership Project, I can assure you that after a short break, we're back at work, busy consolidating the insights from the full 14 rounds of interviews. These will be posted soon on the project website. And then, naturally, I will engage Seth Schultz in a podcast or two where he and I will review the best of what we've found. So watch this space. Meanwhile, you can listen to our back catalogue of episodes on your podcast app of choice or by visiting our project page. The links are in the notes below. On behalf of the project team and the Resilience Shift, this is Peter Willis. Thank you for listening. See you soon. <laughs>